From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today I'm virtually sitting down with Jessica Rhodes, executive producer of Sharp Objects, Dirty John, The Betty Broderick Story, The Affair, and Amazon's new original series, Utopia. Previously head of television with Blumhouse Productions, she is now spearheading her own company, Pacesetter Productions. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. So nice to be here. Our show right now has been a series of specials, and we're calling them Stuck at Home because we're all stuck at home, trying to find ways to be creative. Some of us are slogging through. And that doesn't seem to be the case for you because by the time this show comes out, you will have released two series during quarantine. So what is that like for you? Yes, it's been busy. (laughs) We actually had three projects in post in March when the stay-at-home order came. One of those shows was in production, but was in a hiatus. So that was pretty easy to say, let's just wait and see when we'll go back to production. But we had these two beautiful, exquisite episodes that were being edited on one. And then we had Dirty John, The Betty Broderick Story, and Gillian Flynn's Utopia, both luckily locked, which means all the editors were done with the episodes, but we still had a lot of post-production to do. And so March, April was nimble, stick to itness, working with these incredible teams. Luckily, we had a really great shorthand. Huey, the post-producer on Utopia, and I had worked together on The Affair. And Jonathan Talbert on Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story, had worked on season one. So there was a shorthand. A lot of the crew members were the same, and we were able to really kind of hold each other up and get creative. But we had to move everyone to home. We had to have the effects artists and sound mixers and composers and color correctionists. We had to have everything moved to home, which was a lot. But we did it. We got these incredible shows finished. They took a little bit longer. Things take longer at home, it turns out, both because people are juggling kids at school or not at school, I should actually say, but also literal bandwidth issues. Visual effects shots take longer to do and to send back and forth and home internet. But we got them all done and Dirty John came out in June. And then here we are at the end of September. I don't think we thought Utopia would come out while everyone was still at home. But but here we are. <laughs> what are you going to do? It's a good show for people to watch at home. It certainly is. And I want to go to that in a second. But first, I can admit I am always learning. There's always something more to learn in this industry. And until I started doing research for this interview, I had never heard of a non-writing executive producer. I didn't know that was a term. But what is it you actually do on set and with your talent and writers and creators? I'd like to think of it as hand supporting. <laughs> Television has always had non-writing executive producers. There's always been producers who help get shows made, help writers develop them and shoot pilots and then take them to series and help staff them and help along the way. So I'm not doing anything different in that respect. I do think from the moment I started producing, for me... I kind of live for writers. That's why I came to television. That's what made me know it was the right place for me. My brother's a writer. His friends are writers. So some of my very first experiences producing and supporting writers were genuinely people I loved. And that felt really good to me. I think that was what I was meant to do is help creative people take their visions and get them across the finish line. 
hopefully resembling what their vision is, you know, and it takes a lot of people to do that. It takes a lot of work to do that. So what I just try to be is a partner to the writer whose vision we're all here for, that's my partner. And that's the person that I wake up in the morning for. Every job is different. Every show is different. Every person is different. I just try to be where they can't be or be where they need support. So starting young and working with your brother, when did you realize, oh, this is a job that I want to (laughs) do? No, it's crazy. Someone the other day told me that I was, you know, meeting with one of these mentorship programs and this lovely young woman was saying that she wanted to be a non-writing AP. And I had the same reaction you did, Jenny. I was like, how do you know what that is? Like, I did not know what that was when I was in college. There certainly weren't classes on it. And there are now. There's classes on TV production, which there weren't even. There was film programs, but no one was really teaching the TV landscape when I came up. But I was a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing Marty Noxon's name come up executive producer, Marty Noxon. I saw the I in Marty, and I very distinctly remember being like, that's a woman. Again, I didn't know you could be a non-writing EP. I just saw that a woman could be an EP in TV. Like that was what that taught me. And then I kind of just kept moving forward, which is I want to be an EP in television. I love writers. It seems like writers could use someone to bad ideas back and forth with. That's a job. It's kind of how it happened. I mean, it's so embarrassing because she's now someone I consider such a close friend and confidant. Having Marty be kind of the impetus for what started your career, then what was it like working with her? Because she did sharp objects, right? Yes. It's insane. I mean, Marty knows this, so it's not that embarrassing because I think I told her the first time I met her. She came in, I was at Blumhouse Television, and she came in to say, this is what I want to do with Sharp Objects. It was on the feature side. And she said, it's a TV series. And she came in and she and I just hit it off right away. We were volleying back and forth and we were talking about what the series was and what we loved about the characters. And we just were just, it was just, it was instant. There were other people in the room. So I kept my cool. And then (laughs) I think it was like the second time we met and I was walking her out and it's funny because it was at Blumhouse and the Blumhouse, there's like secret hallways and they're like small. I mean, it's Blumhouse. So it was like down some like creepy long hallway too. Can't believe it. And I was like, I just have to tell you, I'm the biggest fan and you're the reason I'm in TV. (laughs) Totally geeked out. And she was like, cool, ducky. You know what I mean? Like she was like, that's great. And I never mentioned it again. (laughs) And then we became so close and so just knew we wanted to to spend so much time working together. And then the the story came up a couple times while we were doing some panels for Sharp Objects and we had to relive the embarrassment. Now I just own it. Now I just own it. It's good to be a fan. (laughs) It's like a combination of my brother and Marty, which is perfect because writers should be the reason I'm here. I saw an article where she discussed how she and the director, Jean-Marc Vallée, would get into real sparring matches over creative vision, and she had to put you and some other producers in between them. What was that experience like? Here's the thing. The show is brilliant. The show is absolutely brilliant. So everyone wins, and I think some of those creative disagreements actually made it better. I do believe that. I think a lot of the times it was about something not being clear to one of them. And so the process of making it clear made it better, but it was tough. It's very tough to make television when you don't have a singular vision. 
that's just really hard. And we all learned from it. And that show would not be as brilliant as it is about every single word on the page, which we all made sure to follow. You met Gillian Flynn on Sharp Objects. Mm -hmm. Now she is the creator of Utopia, and this is her first time show running, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. I'd love to just hear about your relationship with her and your collaboration with her, because she's quite a voice, as you've said. She's incredible. Working with first time showrunners has become one of my greatest joys because it's really helping them actually know what is possible what they can say no to as well as what they can ask for and where to set their limits. And that's how I approach working with them. Like the Martys and the Alexander Cunninghams, they know how they produce a show and how they want to produce a show and how they see it. So with them, it's just great. Like how do we double the effort because there's two of us and how can I be helpful and how can I be in more places and how can I help you get what you want? But with first time showrunners, it's so much fun, especially women. We want to be a students. We want to do well, but I think everyone who's it's their first shot wants to do it perfectly, wants to do everything. The job is too big for one person. And so what it is, is an effort and restraint and knowing when someone actually needs that from you and when you need to work on your schedule, not their schedule. And so getting to work with Gillian, who had every answer in her head, she wrote all the scripts. So there was never anyone else that was going to be able to give you the answer. So everyone needed her and everyone wanted to get inside her wicked head. (laughs) And so really, it was about how do we build a structure under how do we bring in the very best department heads? How do we bring in the best producing partners who can help this single person be in all these places at once? And I think that was an adjustment for Gillian from obviously writing novels, but then writing screenplays for features. It's more of a director's medium. Even on Sharp Objects where Gillian was in the writer's room, it was amazing. And then she was on set and she was the Bible of the show. And so everyone obviously wanted so much access to her, but it's very different especially on a show like Utopia, where there's so many twists and turns and hidden reasons why and how she wanted things executed was so precise. She did such an amazing job. I mean, it's 100% Gillian. It's a great show. I've seen almost all of it because they were nice enough to leave off the ending episode from the screen. (laughs) Sorry about that. We kind of had to. (laughs) But I'm excited to see that one. It's based off of the British version of Utopia, which was created by Dennis Kelly, who is an executive producer on the show. So what was his guidance there? And did he allow Gillian to have her own vision? But also, was it hard for him? What was that like? I mean, Dennis was incredible in the fact that I think not unlike Gillian is with her novels that she doesn't adapt. His series exists and nothing she does in her series is going to change what his was. And so he really gave her space to make her series, which again, is very much what Gillian did for Marty, you know, with Sharp Objects. And so he saw scripts and he saw the episodes and he was incredibly complimentary and very supportive. I know that they had their conversations over the years. It was a long process. It was a long development process, but he knew it had to be hers, especially because it's an English language show. So if you're going to remake an English language show, you have to be changing it. You have to be reinventing it. It has to be yours. And this version's Gillian's. I'd love to hear more about the process. How did it start? How did you come on board? Where did it all begin? So Gillian had been developing it for a number of years at HBO when Gillian and I got to know each other on Sharp Objects. And they were just in the process of deciding it was going to be 
at a different network. And so Gillian asked me if I wanted to come and be a part of it. She sent me the scripts, all of them. Sorry, not to rub (laughs) in the fact that I got the last one. And I remember distinctly because I had flown into Albuquerque to visit Andrew Miller's set of Tremors. And I'd gotten in late and I had to be on set early in the morning. And I started reading on the plane and I kept reading. I got into my hotel and I checked in and I kept reading and I read until 4 a.m. And I think I had to wake up at six or something. It was like the stupidest thing I could have done, but I couldn't stop. You binge the series, I'm sure you know. I couldn't stop. Every new script, I couldn't believe how much it subverted what I was assuming and expecting. Gillian is wickedly funny. She has this sense of humor in person that it's dancing through her pages, but a lot of the times it didn't appear in dialogue. You're not laughing out loud when you're watching Sharp Objects, let's be honest. (laughs) But like Utopia got to have these laugh out loud moments that Gillian's full of. So I was so excited. It was just such a different side of her. And then we went and we set it up at Amazon and we were off to the races. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. I saw that Gillian said, you know, it's not that violent compared to what Utopia is. It's a very violent show. I should say, by the way, about the violence made much more awkward that we were doing all of the post work from home. And I was approving VFX shots. And literally, I've never been so worried about who was coming over my shoulder. I have two small children. (laughs) And yeah. Usually when you're checking shots, you're worried about someone seeing a spoiler, right? Someone walking by from another show and finding something out about Utopia. This was like every day, what nightmare can I keep my small human being from having? Did they ever see? No. The closest we got was, um, I really loved the Amazon marketing campaign and they sent the red band trailer. And I was watching that when my daughter walked in and, and she knew very quickly that I was watching the show she's not allowed to see. And so she hightailed it out of there. I can't imagine what the violence is in the British version, but even with that, it looks like so much fun to make. Was there a specific day or scene or anything that you really loved making? Gosh, it's so hard because the cast was so siloed and so much of the fun was their rapport, you know? Like, I got to be there for the FringeCon stuff. It's always so fun when it's not just everything in Gillian's mind or your creative's mind, but all of the department heads, minds, the wardrobe, the production design. And it would be not just our core cast, right? You'd look and a costume would walk by you in the cosplay. And it was brilliant, right? Because they were having to invent all these characters. Like every graphic novel, every character you'd see on the floor was this harmony between production design and costume design being like, let's create this character in this graphic novel that doesn't exist. And I just, that's to me so much fun. That's the stuff that like, let's put on a show. Was it a challenge to create a convention of that scale? (laughs) It was this weird thing 
Gillian had had this idea that it's fringe con, right? So it was very distinctly not supposed to be as cool as San Diego or New York. So that was a little complicated, right? Figuring out like the scale of it. The crazy part about that is that hotel is real and has this honeycomb roof and honeycomb balconies and is super kind of (laughs) weird. A lot of us stayed there because we're shooting through the night. And so we lived in FringeCon. That was weird. I want to talk about casting because the cast is great, but John Cusack doesn't really do TV. So how did he get brought onto the project? He was a really exciting idea. The fun part is Christy isn't in the original. He's not in the UK version. So that's a completely original character. We loved him the moment his name came up. We were shooting in Chicago, which is where he lives. And I swear we thought that's why they were excited about it. And we thought like, oh, that's why John Cusack's doing TV is because it's TV in Chicago. And then he got on the phone with Gillian and he was like, I love these scripts. He was super in. And then he was like, where are you shooting? She was like, Chicago. And he's like, oh, that's great. And we're like, oh, that's not why he did it. That's cool. It's just because it's great writing. It's just great writing. How did you find the rest of the cast? They were a great cohesive little unit. Yeah. David Rubin, who is... Uh, now the president of the Academy. But he is our incredible casting director. He did Sharp Objects as well. So Gillian and I asked him to be part of Utopia. And he just dove in. His team was so amazing. I think Gillian had Sasha in her mind very early. I mean, it's a hard role to cast. Sasha Lane, who plays Jessica Hyde. Jessica is such an interesting character because you want her to be a hero, but she's not necessarily a hero. She's just trying to survive. Like we hear over and over, you need to stay alive, Jessica Hyde. It's so specific and Sasha so embodies Jessica. And then the rest we just assembled through mix and match. I mean, there's some incredible breakouts, which is really exciting. Is it interesting sharing a name with the lead character? And so you're being screamed for on set all day. (laughs) It's funny. It wasn't a set thing because most people call her Sasha on set. Like it wasn't a set thing. It was absolutely a post thing because people in post don't exactly know the actors as much. So you're talking about the characters more. Mm. Whenever you'd have a conversation with the network and they'd want to talk about Jessica, that, that was, I think I was the only one aware of it, which is good. Like it was only about like, you can't get out of your own head, you know? And then every once in a while in marketing, we'd be on these huge calls and they'd be talking about Jessica and Jessica and Jessica. It's so weird that you ask that question because it's only ever happened to me once before, which was in Tremors. Andrew Miller named a character Jessica and promised to change it. And then it never got changed. And then I was doing the same thing. Here I knew going in. So Jessica, the character, (laughs) she's a badass. And obviously she's been trained to fight and she's very agile and quick with her weapons and all of that. Did Sasha have to go through fight training? Did she do her own stunts ever? What was the process there? The amazing thing about Sasha is that she had already done fight training for the movie she had done right before us. It's a big franchise. And so she had just done huge fight training and had done her own stunts and was really excited about that. But we ended up, obviously, we took safety precautions and it's not all her. The trajectory of the story with so many characters who do shockingly not end up continuing. Did the actors know the full script as they went in? Were some of them surprised at who stayed involved and who didn't? That's a good question. I don't think I can answer it without spoiling anything. Because if you've seen the show, 
a couple of them knew going in. Mm-hmm. Not all of them. <laughs> That's a good enough answer for what you can say. <laughs> okay, I want to take a break from Utopia really quick and just go back in your career because you've done such vastly different genres. I grew up. <laughs> it's like watching you grow up because you really started with Disney and Nickelodeon and, and working with Ashley Tisdale. I'd love to hear more about those years and what you learned from them. Yeah, by the way. Now my kids are watching those movies and those shows. And now it kills me that my kids can't watch my shows. They will eventually. (laughs) I know. It's so crazy. I mean, look, I started producing when I was 22 years old. So I knew I wanted to produce for some strange reason, thought I should be able to do it. And I had to figure out why people needed me, why I could be useful. And there's not that many things for someone with my experience to do. So I did figure out early that the family space was welcoming to me. I was young. I was closer in age to the audience. And so I could at least seemingly have my finger on the pulse. I got along with the actors and I was able to make a lot of shows for Nickelodeon and Disney. And I got to know the executives extremely well. And it was this really special thing. This was before a lot of writers had come over to TV. They were a lot of feature writers who weren't being produced. They were making money and a living writing, but they weren't being produced. And so I was able to bring a few of them over and say, let's get your show made. Let's get your movie made. And that was really exciting, right? I was young and I didn't have real ties to LA. And so I think I was in Vancouver for the majority of several years, going one show to another. It was incredible. And I am a firm believer in that 10,000 hours, the Malcolm Gladwell idea. I got 10,000 hours as a producer, extremely young. And I got to a point where I could be calm, and collected in almost any circumstance. And I was ready to make television that matched more what I wanted to watch and what I wanted to read, what I wanted to say. And so I was looking at how to transition. And again, it came down to writers. A lot of writers who I had worked with had told their reps that they wanted to do more with me. You know, it was was just a, it was that. And so a really great guy at CAA, Frank, was like, Jason Blum is looking for someone to head his TV company. Like, would you ever do that? I know you've been a producer on your own all these years, but like, is that something you do? And I said, yeah, let me meet him. Because I was definitely looking for a change. And also what I liked about Blumhouse a lot is that Jason had built a company on the feature side based on giving the keys to the directors, right? This director creative autonomy that was so important to him. And that's exactly what I wanted to do in TV. That's what I came to TV to do for writers. And so I really, even though obviously Blumhouse is far more well-known for the, the brand and the genre, I loved what was underneath what they were doing, which was believing in those creatives and like sticking to them. So that was the transition, which I think changed When you look at the projects I've done, there's a marked change right there. (laughs) (laughs) And I still appreciate Jason seeing that in me. And then it was the same. It was just writers, writers, writers. What did he need to see from you to know that this kind of genre switch was in what your wheelhouse would become? I mean, I think he probably saw that I just wanted to support the creative. And that was important to him. I came out of low-budget niche television. It happened to be for family entertainment, but 
is a company that's built on low budget niche entertainment. So a lot of these are applicable skills. We just hit it off. I think he saw that I was a producer. You know, I was coming in to produce. You know, I think he is attracted to people who are producerial. What is the job of head of television? He certainly had a lot of television already set up when I got there. But the goal was taking the company, which was so well known for what it did on the feature side, and turn it into a go-to television destination and to help people realize it wasn't just horror because that's a little too niche. And so figuring out what that brand could be. When did you know that it was time to move on and create Pacesetter? They were becoming a studio and that I knew I didn't want to do. I wanted to remain a producer. Sharp Objects was in prep and had become my day-to-day, had become where I spent all my time. And frankly, I think we all looked at each other and went, that's where you should be. Looking back, it was so much easier than it probably should have been. Now you've got Station Eleven. It's a post-apocalyptic series about a flu. (laughs) You caught that. (laughs) So I just have to point out the obvious. You keep ending up in these virus movies. (laughs) The funny thing is, because I talked a lot about DeGillian and Patrick Somerville, who created Station Eleven, before I committed to both. The projects themselves are not that similar. They're very different shows. They take place at very different times in a pandemic. Were there not to have been a real-life global pandemic, I don't know that everyone would have actually compared these two shows. (laughs) Right. But here we are, and they're so different. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old. And today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dreams. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. I've had this conversation with a few people where they're like, you look outside and it feels like we're all in a movie, but it's not. Does it get confusing reality versus cinema because you're doing these epic stories and then it kind of matches what's going on outside? Is Gillian Flynn a soothsayer? Maybe. There's so many weird, specific, small things that hit the news and we're all on text chains just sending it to each other. Like, cannot believe it. No one's wearing masks in the crowd scenes outside the hot zone. We had an epidemiologist, like we had an advisor. It didn't occur to any, I mean, it just, it's so funny. It's so pre-2020. What was the reaction that you and your team had when the pandemic hit in real life, having it relate so closely to your show? Well, our first thing was we had a, a mixed playback that needed to be rescheduled. Like we had this one thing that we were every... 12 hours taking a temperature check on everyone to be like, is it safe? Should we do it? Should we gather? Okay, no, this is a real thing. We're going to push that. We're going to figure it out. 
So I think honestly, we were so laser focused on producing the show that I think that is when we all went, this might be a little too close to home. I want to talk briefly about Start With Eight Hollywood, the mentorship program. Could you tell us a little bit more about what it is and how you got involved? The internet, the Twitter. (laughs) I mean, it's absolutely incredible. There's bad things that have come out of social media. And it is also nice to connect with people. And I saw quite early that some of the organizers were putting it together. And I reached out and I said, I'm here if anyone's interested. And they said, yes. Then they introduced me to eight incredible young women. It's amazing what they were able to create so quickly. And it's all volunteer run. And every one of the mentees is at a very different point in their career. There's literally a young woman who's never done anything. And we're having conversations about what it is to be a writer's PA and whether or not that's the right thing for her when rooms reopen and people gather in person. And other people have shot independent features and independent pilots, which I don't know if that's a good way to spend your time, but I really appreciate that they're doing it. I think that that's the thing. People don't have mentors. So people don't have people saying, I don't know who's going to watch that. I don't know how that's going to lead to what you want. Let's focus on things that are going to lead to what you want. How do we find the right way to show your talent, grow your talent? How do we get it into the right hands? What is a real next step? So many young in experience, not necessarily in years, creatives have been floating out there trying to figure out how to be creative, how to use their time wisely. I am only one person with one opinion. So you have to pick your advice well and decide if it's for you. But ideally, someone's making introductions when you're ready for it. And I like opening the barriers to entry because so much of this industry is absolutely who you know. It just is. That's okay as long as you have opportunities to know more people and people that frankly have different opportunities than you. I do want to ask then, what is it that's not the right step necessarily about shooting your own independent feature or pilot? I think feature is great because there's actually something you can do with it. That it's not only a test of your skill, your art form, it's honing it back to 10,000 hours. Just doing it does make you better. But aside from letting people see it, there's release opportunities now. There's streaming platforms. There's actually a way to get it seen there's still no way that people can even see professionally produced pilots that don't go to series. Mm -hmm. So a spec pilot, to me, I don't know that that's as effective as, say, a short or a feature. That's a really specific... I don't know that how many people are walking around shooting spec pilots. We are kind of taught, make your projects that you have something to show when you get the chance to meet someone because the door has opened. But it makes sense if you've put all this time and energy and money into a project and then you can't put it out. That's just my opinion. I think that you want things that you work on to not only get to showcase what you can do, but hopefully have a life for all the people that worked on it. You came on to season two of Dirty John, and then you came on to like season four and five of The Affair. Coming on later in a series, what is that experience and how do you find your flow with an already established show? It just always comes back to the showrunner. And just trying to watch and read and listen to whatever you can get your hands on from where they've been, and then just really focus on where they want to go. And it's not without difficulty, you know, it's tricky, but hopefully 
if you're there. In my case, they want you there. So you're, you're really trying to help them. And luckily for both those two examples, I was a huge fan of the shows to begin with and obviously the creators. So it's just an opportunity to work with them. Each set you're on, do you take away new lessons? Always. But sometimes they're personal lessons. Sometimes they're about how you manage your team or your life or your balance. Sometimes you realize where you're spending energy that you could spend less. You learn how to be more efficient in life. But that just comes with age. I think that comes with every set, but that also just comes with age. And being a mom, you get really, really efficient. You mentioned who you look up to when you were getting into TV, but did you have any mentors, like how you're mentoring people now? Did you have any mentors as you were coming up? Not that knew they were my mentor. What I had were people whose careers I was watching and careers I was learning from. And sometimes it was learning what I didn't want to do. But yeah, what I've replaced that in later in my life and my career have been these deeply fulfilling collaborative friendships. But that's a generational thing too. I think that's why a lot of women of my generation, especially, are trying to be supportive of younger men and women that we see talent in. So if you were mentoring young Jessica right now, what would be your advice for you? That's a good question. Wow. It's a really good question. Because I do think every mistake you made gets you to where you're at, right? I think just take it less personally. Get out of your own head. And it's really weird advice to give from home when we're all so in our own minds and so in our own space. It's really easy to forget that people are fixated and obsessed with their own things and their own issues and their own concerns. And it so rarely has to do with you. You know, I think it's really easy to overthink things, especially as someone who wants to be liked. That's a human trait. And I think to just not take it personally. It is a business. So I always wrap up on the same question, which I am excited to hear from you because you have a different perspective. But what does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? Again, it's funny being asked at this moment where people need outlets more than ever. They need escapism more than ever, entertainment more than ever. For me, I'm always interested in what writers have to write, what storytellers have to explore what tales they have to tell. And I think in moments like we're in currently, you're literally watching writers write their way through it. And those are the stories I want to help tell. And those are the stories I want to watch. So for me, being a part of telling those stories, that's how you connect. I truly believe that. Jessica Rhodes, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody should definitely watch Utopia. It is on Amazon. It is a great show. And thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Jenny, so much. Have a good one. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guest Jessica Rhodes, co-produced and edited by Jay Whiting. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. <laughs>